here this morning. I mean that. I, I just feel it's such a privilege to be able to share uh, God's Word with you and that uh, to see you putting things into practice in your life. If you uh, are, haven't been here in a while or it's your first time here, you're kind of getting here at the end of, the, of a series that we've been in called Making History. That's why we sang that uh, one song this morning. And we've just been talking about how your story and my story is a part of history or a part of His story, something God's doing on this planet that's bigger than just us. And sometimes we look at our own lives and think, well, like, does, like my life doesn't really matter, but, but it does. And it's about being intentional about that uh, and seeing us t- uh, uh, have focus towards that to see God do uh, what he does in our life and notice when that happens. We've been encouraging uh, you to think about your story. You heard a bunch of stories over the last four weeks uh, from people. And you're like, ah, the responses have been great. People are like, I love this series. I had no idea that so, that person went through that. Things make a lot of sense. Or, or just, wow, you know, I think of them differently. I have a much higher like, admiration for them after knowing what they've been through. And so we hear uh, lots and lots of that. And so this morning, I wanted to, again, encourage you to think about your story. Sit down, just say, what has God done in my life? And to write it out so that you're ready when someone else uh, asks you or gives you an opportunity to share it, that you'd have a chance to share it. And so this morning in part five, uh, we've titled part five, Those People with these, those people. Uh, we'll talk uh, about that this morning. Uh, a number of weeks ago, I listened to a message. It's part of a series called 90. You can find it online. North Point Church put it out. There's a guy named Clay Scroggins. I'm like, that is such a cool name. I'm just going to have to say it twice. Clay Scroggins. It's a really manly southern name. But uh, Clay just uh, shares just some amazing, amazing thoughts on this, this uh this idea of, uh, of those people, and so I want to share some of his thoughts with you this morning. And as I was you know, doing, some, uh, doing some research for some things that our family's going through, I found uh, this guy named Richard Beck, and he's got some really cool stuff that I wanted to share with you this morning. And so I wasn't sure how today was going to go. To be honest, I was a little nervous because there's some, just some very different stuff this morning. But what I realized is that e- each person here will, will uh, uh, interact with this on a unique level, and I believe there's something for each and every person here. So this morning... Starting off with this thought, do you have people in your life that you would say, these are my people? Yes. These th- I, thank you, because last night people were like, uh, and we're like, do you have people that you would have over for dinner? They're the, maybe it's your family, maybe it's friends, maybe you, you cheer for the same uh, uh, hockey team, maybe you're on the same indoor soccer team, and like, these are my people. These are the people that, that I would have over. These are the people that I like. And last night, like, there was no answer. So I'm like, those Saturday night people have no friends. But um, <laughs> you guys, I can tell, you know, you have, you have friends. And so they're the people you'd have over for dinner. And so um, the, the kind of the question this morning is, how big is your table? How, how, many, how much room do you have for, for, for your people in your life? And so um, we're looking to build a house later this year. We hope that maybe that'll happen. And so as we are thinking about what do we really want in the house, Beth's like, it's just one thing I really, really want in the house. I want like a huge uh, dining room table. I want to be able to have another Dutch family over and we can all sit together, <laughs> right? Hey, it's like, and, well, what if we invite the Cafazos? Well, then we'll just have to add more chairs, but at least seating for 12. And so we start looking at how big of a table that would require and have for food. And we realize, man, if you have that big of a table, you need that big of a dining room. And then it's like the dollars and cents. We're like, yeah, I'm like, no, we're just going to have like a, a little bit smaller table with leafs or whatever. And we'll, we'll borrow chairs from somewhere. And as we kind of worked it out, we've sort of s- settled halfway in between. But she just wanted a table that's big enough for everyone. That's my question. Is your table, like, big enough for everyone? Do you, do you have a lot of your people? Uh, and then 
you know you have your people, so we'll just see if the, the response is as, as, as exuberant for this. Do you have people who are not your people? People that are those people? They're, they're the people you don't love hanging out with. They're, they're the ones that you um, feel awkward around when you talk to them, or, or you just avoid them. Some of them are here this morning. We're not going to point any fingers, but you have, you have people here that you're like, ah, I don't associate with those people. And it's, it's different things. There's lots of different reasons. One might be age, right? You're like, you're sitting at the back, and you're like, what are those little rugrats running around the front of church for? Don't, you know, or maybe you're, maybe you're like, my parents, oh, they're so old. They haven't had a new thought in 50 years, you know? And like, I don't talk to them. Uh, maybe... Maybe for you it's like, oh, this millennial generation, when are they going to get it together? Or whatever your thought is. But you're like, oh, I just feel, nah, I just, the, 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 those people, I don't really want to ha- hang out with them. Maybe it's race. You know, maybe it's like, oh, those Dutch people. You know, there's just so many of them. They're so cheap. Oh, whatever, whatever your thought is. You just got to get to know us. We're really pretty great. But um, maybe that's your thing. You're like, no, nah, you know, they just think too highly of themselves. Or, or maybe you have other ones where it's like, you know, maybe, maybe it's the natives or, or uh, other ethnic groups that have moved into our country. You're like, yeah, I, just, I don't know, I just feel uh, awkward around them or whatever. And like, oh, like, now you're stepping on toes. Good, here we go. What about gender? Maybe you have, find it awkward to talk to people of the opposite sex. You're not, you're not sure why, but it's just, you just feel awkward around them. Maybe it's education. You know, those people are, <laughs> they're not as smart as me. I just, uh, it's like so boring to talk to them. Uh, or maybe it's the other, where you're like, uh, those people are just so much smarter. When I talk to them, I don't understand a thing they're saying, but I just smile and nod, and hopefully they don't ask any questions, and like, I never want to be in that situation again. I have no idea what that was. That's usually me with my mechanic, uh, but you know, but maybe it's beliefs. Maybe it's like, you know, the, the people from a, another denomination, you're just like, ah, I just feel, I just don't like talk. They believe such different things than me, or, or maybe it's whole belief systems like, you know, the Muslims, or you know, other belief systems, you're like, ugh, I have issues with that. You, you know, you hear the word Muslim, and it, it brings up these feelings on the inside. We're talking about that this morning. Maybe it's sexual orientation. You know, the LGBTQ2, all the extras, things that are having you meet people, and you're like, ugh, it's just a little awkward. We will move on. Political views. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, it's recorded. I can't. Political views, but, you know, maybe there's, you know, the liberals, or maybe you're conservative, and whatever side you fall on, you just, you don't want to talk politics with other people. Uh, maybe it's economic status. You know, they live on the wrong side of Townsend. Sorry, Bob. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> or they cheer for the wrong sports teams. You know, they're Habs fans. You're like, yeah, we, we, uh, we just don't talk to those people. Whatever it is, there's, there's, there's a long list a long list of people that would fall into the category of those people in our lives. And I hope by giving you this long of a list that you feel like, yeah, there is somebody that fits in the, those people. And so before we go too far this morning, I just want to show you this video. It's called The Moral Circle. Let's just say this is you. You're the big red person. All these okay. people around you are just the people that you come in contact with. Some are people that you're friends with. Some are just, you know, the, the checkout person at the grocery store. Everyone has a moral circle. And all that means is that the people that are most central to you there are going to get your most love and they're the people that you're gonna be nicest towards. Okay, how many of you here have waited tables? So you guys know what misery that is. I have waited tables also. Imagine a friend, a family member, somebody you really care about is gonna start waiting tables. They go through the whole training process. You get a group of people together. You go, you sit in their section. You're all excited first night. And they come over and they are just sweating bullets, 
right? What do you say to them? Oh, don't, don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. Don't even worry about us. We don't even need drinks. I don't even like water. It's fine. We're fine. I don't even like this. An hour later, they come over and take your order. You ordered steak in front of you as cod. It's great. You love cod. Cod's terrific. We're going to eat this. This is going to be great. And then what do you do at the, over, at the end of the night? You over-tip them, don't you? You over-tip them. Now, imagine that same scenario, and you have no idea who this server is. And they come, and you know what? You ordered Coke Zero, and this tastes like Diet Coke. So you stop making eye contact with these people. You start to do that mental math of the tip going down, down, down. I'm not going to even look at this person. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. We were paying for a good time. What is this? Two different types of behavior from us for two different people. One is your mom. One is your friend. One is your brother. The other one isn't. But the other one's somebody's mom. The other one's somebody's friend. The other one's somebody's brother. Why do we justify two different types of behavior for people that we come in contact with? Let's just say this is... question. Why do we justify two different types of behavior for different types of people we come into contact with? And, um, you know, it's something that we all do to some extent. We, we all have it. We have this group of people that are our people. And they say, on average, it's about 500 people. And then there's the other people out there. You're not necessarily mean to them. They're just, they're just there for your, um, to, to, as an end to whatever your means are. And, and, and there, there is some out on that other side, but they're out there because they're out there on purpose. And so this morning, since if we look at it and say, well, yeah, every one of us, to some extent, has some of these feelings of this, then why does it matter? We are all in the same boat, so we all treat each other that way. Well, the thing is that it would seem like Jesus actually cares about the way that we treat people on the outside of the, the circle. And so we want to look at that this morning. There's a man named John, John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that John. He was a follower of Jesus, and he wrote down uh, uh, things that happened in, in the, as he followed Jesus and what he saw. And so I want to share with you a really important story from his life and from the life of Jesus this morning. So it's John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, uh, you can open up to, to that spot or you can follow along on uh, the screen. But John chapter 4 says this, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard, verse 1, that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. And, and though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. And he had to go through Samaria on the way. And I just highlighted that because I just want you to know how many times they use this word in the next number of verses. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, who was tired from the long walk, he sat wearily beside the well, and it was about noontime. So can you picture it? He's been walking for a long time. It's actually a couple days' journey. He's been walking a long time. He's tired. It's noon. It's hot. He sits down at this well. In verse 7, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Verse 8, he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Then the woman, she was surprised. She said, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She was, she was shocked. Here's, here, here she walks down to the well, and normally there would be nobody there. They don't draw water at noon. It's hot. She's coming there on her own for a reason. She doesn't want to see all the other people. And, and then there's this man there, a Jewish man. She thinks, ah, you know what, I can just draw water and move on. And he all of a sudden initiates conversation with her. And, and she right away says, well, wait, this is not, this is awkward. Why are you talking to me? We, we don't talk to one another. 
And you know why? For 500 years, this, this group called the Samaritans and this group called the, the, the Jewish people hated each other. They lived right border to border. And actually, the Samaritans used to be part of the Jewish, um, part of Israel. And what happened, they were taken into captivity. And then a guy named O-Snapper, which is a really cool name if anybody hasn't chosen a child's name yet, O-Snapper is, I, I love it. Uh, it'd be great to yell at them when they're bad too. O-Snapper, you know, but... So this guy, oh, Snapper, he from Babylon, he brings a whole bunch of the, the people from Samaria out of, out of there who were Jewish people, and he brings a bunch of other people in, and they start intermarrying. And so all of a sudden, the Jews see these people and like, well, those people are half Jewish. So half Jewish people, they're like, all of a sudden, they got, all got that title of those people. We have nothing to do with those people. They, ha- they have kind of a Jewish religion, but they change some of the locations of where we worship. And so we don't really have anything to do with them. And so she's really surprised. She's like, hello, you should know this. This has been happening for 500 years. We don't talk to one another. But Jesus in- initiates conversation with her simply because he knows that he has something that she needs. He has something she needs. She doesn't know it yet. So Jesus replies to her. He'd asked her, hey, can you give me a drink? She's like, why are you talking to me? And so he says, if you knew who was talking to you, and it was the gift that God had for you, you'd ask me and I would give you a drink of water. And so he's talking about, you know, forgiveness of sin, and he's talking about eternal life. That's what he has to offer her. He kind of puts it in this metaphor of water, but it just confuses her. She's like, why is he talking to me? And why is he telling me that he's going to give me a drink? She's like, I know those people are kind of dumb, but this guy's really dumb. He doesn't even have a bucket. He doesn't have a rope. He's talking about giving me water. And she kind of looks at him and is like, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I don't get it. Verse 11, she says, but sir, you don't even have a rope or a bucket. She said, in this well, it's very deep. Where would you get this living water that you're talking about? Verse 12, and besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon be thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give, they'll never be thirsty again. He tries to get her to understand it in a little bit of a different way. He says it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. He says, what I'm trying to tell you is this is not about water. This is about e- eternal life. But she's still thinking about water. She says in ver- the next verse, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. I'm not sure if that was sarcastic or whatever. But she's like, yeah, and then I will never have to come here to get water again. You know, the well was a place where people would gather at a, at, in the mornings and in the evenings often. It was a place of uh, community. They'd have to wait for one another. They'd help one another. But here she is all by herself. She's always had to come by herself, uh, most likely to the well uh, on her own. And she's like, man, if I don't have to do this anymore, I don't have to come here at noon anymore. Yeah, okay, I, I'm into this conversation. Tell me what I'm missing. So then Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll tell you, but go and get your husband. And she says in the next verse, I, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And we think that's kind of how that maybe that might have been said, because Jesus, Jesus knew where this conversation was going from the minute he started it. He already knew that she had five husbands when he asked her, hey, go bring your husband. He's kind of setting her up to realize something about herself. And you know, when, when we read the story, but would you just picture it? Here, here you are. You go to the grocery store or the gas station. You're like, hey, how you doing? Good. How you doing? Hey, I, I, and, like, uh, and you're like, I'm good. And like, Really? Like, I know that you had three affairs this week, and I know the hotel room and the number. You're like, what? 
Like, how, how do you know that? And like, okay, you, you know, the, what's the very next thing you're going to do? See you later, right? I'm out here. I don't, I don't know what they know, how they know, but I don't want to know any more about what they know, and I, I'm, I'm gone. This woman, it's, it's, she's in this same situation. When Jesus says, go get your husband, what we learn from it is that that's not the very first thing he told her. Jesus knows that she's one of these women who's had all kinds of relationships. And just, just insert the word in your mind of what, we, what you would hear those t- type of women called in our day and age. This was, a, this was a really, really negative experience for her. And Jesus knows that about her. And yet, the way he talks to her, he doesn't um, morally sort her out of the, the, the possibility for conversation, which oftentimes we are tempted to do. Where we see somebody, you know, and, and in our mind, we right away begin to sort whether they fit in our moral circle or not. And we do it subconsciously, but Jesus doesn't do it. It's almost like in us, we've got like this America's Got Talent thing, this buzzers. You know, America's Got Talent, my kids watch it. And basically, if, they, if the judges are, are watching the talent and it's not a good talent, they're like, yeah, you're not what I'm looking for. They don't say that nicely. They, go, they, they hit their buzzer like huge, you know, Simon or whoever, right? It's like, you know, you're not what we're looking for. And it's like normally three strikes and you're out, but this show just like twists it in there. It's like four, you know? Like this is like, you're no good. And you get booed off the stage, right? But Jesus doesn't have that. He could have. See, when he's sitting there at the well and, and she walks up, he could have been like, oh, she's Samaritan. She's a woman. We don't talk. Oh, she's that kind of woman. Right? And like, we're not having a conversation. I'll get my own water. But, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And it's surprising to me that she doesn't leave because it doesn't tell us exactly how Jesus says it. We just read it. And when you read something, you don't read the tone. But what I do know is the fact that she didn't leave tells me that Jesus wasn't harsh with her when he said it because she stays there. She stays there. And there must have been something about the way that he talked to her that she wanted to stay and still have this conversation, though she was surprised it was happening. And maybe you think, you know, well, but aren't we supposed to judge sin? Doesn't God hate sin? I know that's in the Bible too. Well, sure it is. And maybe you've heard, you know, the, the, the saying that says, you know, God hates sin, but he loves a sinner. Anybody heard that? Well, the, 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 the bigger truth of that is God hates sin because he loves a sinner. He knows that sin hurts people, people that he dearly loves. So that's why he hates sin. It's not tied to he hates sin, uh, but, but he tolerates a sinner, which is kind of what we think. He hates sin because it ruins the lives of sinners. So he's sitting there. He realizes, I hate sin, but I love this person. And as she walks up, he, begins to con- he continues the conversation with her. Um, and so she doesn't leave, but she tries to change the subject. So she says in verse 19, she's like, sir, you must be a prophet. Like, I don't know how you know all that, but you must be a prophet. And so she's like, oh, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem's the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. She's kind of like, I have my own beliefs. You know, like, okay, you're a Christian or you're, you're somebody, but, you know, I, I kind of believe my own things. And so she, she asked a question. Well, Jesus answered. He says, you know what? Yeah, we believe different things. But what I'm telling you is that there's a Savior and there's salvation coming through the Jews. I know you think we're not supposed to talk, but, but there's something about to happen uh, for the Samaritans, and it's going to come through the Jews. And so in verse 25, the woman says, oh, I know the Messiah is coming. I, I've heard of him before. You know, why don't we just wait till he comes? You know, you've told me enough about me. We've had enough conversations. Let's just end this. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell me everything that I need to know, and, and we're good till, till then. He'll explain everything. And then Jesus tells her something that he hasn't told anyone else. 
He says to her in verse 26, I am the Messiah. See, like we know we're waiting for the Savior of the world to come. I'm waiting for my Savior to come. And he says, I am your Savior. I am the Messiah. You could just probably picture her mouth just drop like, no wonder he knows. Like, oh, this is like mind-blowing. But yeah, he just told me. He's probably the one. And you wonder what her next question would be, but it doesn't really give us a chance to hear that because something happens. Jesus' disciples come back from town. Probably they're on their way, you know, going to town. Like, yeah, thanks a lot, Jesus. Send us into town. We didn't even want to go through Samaria in the first place. Now we got to go to town and talk to Samaritans and order food, and you're just going to sit at the well. And so they're coming back with food. Maybe they went to KFC. They come back, and they're like, they see. And it says this. They're shocked when they find Jesus talking to a woman. And I love that John, he, he tells us what they were thinking. He, he says, none of them had the nerve to ask, but they were all thinking in their head, what does he want with her? What is Jesus, why is he talking to her? Why is he talking to those people? And they start looking around like, oh good, you know, we're far away from town. We're far enough away. No other Jewish people saw this. What? We leave him alone for an hour and he starts mingling with, we get Jesus out of here. And so they, they walk up to him and they're like, they're thinking it, but they walk in to see what happens. And so as soon as they show up, the woman leaves. So they have no idea what happened, but here's what happened with the woman. She left her water jar, the thing she came to get. She ran back to the village, and she starts telling everyone. Just go back. She starts telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Go back to our little you know, gas station spot where it's you and the gas station attendant. You know, would you be running out to everybody you know and saying, hey, that gas station attendant told me all about my three affairs and every other dirty thing I've ever done? No, that, that, that wouldn't happen. So why does it happen here? It happens here, I believe, because as Jesus talks to her, he talks to her in a way that she realizes, hey, there's this stuff, there's, there's issues in here that, that, uh, that are, are not right, but this man can help. This man can fix it. So she says, you know, could he possibly be the Messiah? And I love this. Verse 30, it says, so the people came streaming from the village to see him. You know, I can just see as she tells the people, she's like, this, he told me everything I ever did. And they're like, everything? What about man number three and how that went? Yeah, he told me all about that. Really? Yeah. And, and you know what? He was okay to talk to me. So if, if, if he was okay talking to me, I bet he's okay talking to you. And they're like, well, yeah, we're probably not as bad as her, but yeah, yeah, okay, let's go see this. Let's go see this person because he must be something. Well, meanwhile, it says the, the, the disciples are sitting there with Jesus and they're, they're like wanting to get out of there. So they're like, hey, you know, rabbi, teacher, eat some food, you know, like here, have some KFC and then let's get out of here. And Jesus is, he's, he's sitting there and he says, listen, you know what, my food, my nourishment, verse 34, comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Verse 35, he says, you know, there's a saying that says four months between planting and harvest. But he says, I'm saying, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. And they're probably sitting there going, it's noon, Jesus. We've been up for a long time. They're not teenagers on March break like we mentioned earlier, right? It's, he's like, we've been up for a long time. And he says, but no, listen, you're, you're awake, but you're not awake. And he says, look around. And we're like, we're, we're looking around. He's like, yeah, but look, and I want you to see what I see. He's like, you're sitting here thinking, we got to get out of this place because this is awkward and those people are coming. He said, I want you to see that those people are coming because they need and want a Savior. And that's why I'm here. And as they begin to look, he's like, wake up and see the harvest is already um, uh, ripe. As Jesus is sitting there, he knows what his disciples think about those people. 
But he also knows what his heavenly father thinks about those people, and he wants to, to, to show them this. So there's a people come streaming out of the city. They come down to the well to see Jesus. And I love this, verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus. Many, many Samaritans Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. See, there's a reason why we've been encouraging you to tell your story. Because there's many people around you who may just open their hearts to him simply because you told them your story of what he's done in your life. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days. And I find this part hilarious. That means that Jesus stayed with them for two days, and that means his disciples also had to stay with him for, for them for two days. They're like, this is awkward. Let's get out of here. And like, no, we're having a sleepover. We're staying here for a couple of days. They're like, Ugh. Awkward, and yet it was life-changing for them. And you see it all through Acts that they would later go to the very Samaritans who they shunned, and they would go to those people uh, and and. You know, it would have been an awkward situation, but John wrote his letter and he describes Jesus as Jesus was a man full of grace and full of truth. He could share the truth with this woman, but there was so much grace there that she was like, I need to hear more. Whereas for us sometimes when we speak truth, there's this thing of we use truth to morally sort people out of conversations that we would even have with them. Verse 41, Jesus stayed there for two days. That was long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Verse 42, they said, then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we've heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. We went, we, our heart was open to, to hear about Jesus because of your story. Because of her story, they were like, my heart's open to, to hear. But it was because they actually had the opportunity to meet Jesus, he did the rest. And then it became personal for them. So the idea of your story is not to change them, it's to Give people an opportunity to open their hearts to an incredible Savior that they might say, I've met the Savior of the world. I've met my Savior. It wasn't just the way, you know, I think that's the spot that I, I don't want to lose in this story is that this story is not just about a woman telling her story. Because if Jesus didn't treat her that way, there is no story. There's a big part of how Jesus treated this woman and how Jesus treated those people that actually makes this story uh, that, that, we, that we're even reading it 2,000 years later. Because the question is this. Why am I and why are you tempted to treat those people more like the disciples do than like Jesus did? Why is there a temptation to treat the people that we find awkward, the people that are like, ugh, they're not my people. Why are we tempted to treat them more like the disciples did than like Jesus did? Why do we even have a moral circle? Why do we have this, this group of people that we're okay with and this group that we're not? And I, and, and I want to share a couple thoughts with you. And it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's, well, we'll just go there. It's called the psychology of disgust. Um, I hope it's spelled right today. It wasn't last night. Um, the, psychology, the psychology of disgust might be something that triggers some. You may want to go home and look up. But what the psychology of disgust is, you're like, how does this fit? You'll find out in a second. It's the way our minds think naturally about things. They think that, that we've been designed with this, this, this uh, response called, the, called disgust to actually save our lives. It's like when you see rotting meat in your fridge, it's like, yeah, no, that's not, I'm not eating that. That's not going to be, it's why you wouldn't go and say, I'm going to go lick the handrail on my way out today, right? It's the, things like that, that, that it's like, no, that's disgusting, right? It's, to, it's actually to keep you from getting um, sick, and we all have it. We all have it for different things. I was at a, a, an office a couple, uh, well, uh, yeah, a couple weeks ago, and I was sitting there 
um, with, my, with my son, and they had, um, this guy collects fossils. So he's got all kinds of dinosaur bones and stuff, and then he has this, like they're all in these cases, and, and then he has this little black pillow. And on the black pillow, there's this little fossil, this rock. And so he's like, hey, you want to touch that one? This, that's my favorite one. And so we're like, yeah, pick it up. I'm like, what is this? I'm looking at him. As I'm looking at him, I'm like, it has the shape of, he's like, it's poop. And I'm like, <gasps> you know, I'm like, ugh, and put it back down on the, on the thing. He's like, it's animal poop. It's fossilized. And he's like, he says, you, you put it down right away, but he says, it's just a rock now. I know, but there was something about that that I was like, I, I don't want that. I remember way back, I've told this story a number of times, but back in the, back in the day when Beth and I first got married, um, we would go out on dates, and so one day we went to Christian's Restaurant in Simcoe. I don't know if it's still there, but they had all-you-can-eat chicken and ribs, and uh, yeah, some of you already know where this is going, but uh, they had all-you-can-eat chicken and ribs. Well, we couldn't eat it all, so at the end, after the night, I, was, like, I asked the waitress if I could have a doggy bag to take stuff home, and so she packed it up, and we go home. The next morning, I get up. Beth's already gone. She would have gone to work, and uh, I got up, and I was looked in the fridge, and like the ribs were there, and so the, her ribs were there, and my ribs were there, and I was like, wow, that's great. I'm going to put them on the, I'll grill them up and have them with eggs. And so I, I, I had breakfast. Well, I ate mine and I ate hers. And then I went to work. And then, of course, halfway through the day, she comes home. I get a phone call. She's home for lunch. And she calls me. She's like, hey, did you eat all the ribs? I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm like, why are you sorry? She says, oh, because I thought last night when you said that you were asking for a doggy bag, that that's what you meant. So I put the ribs in the dog dish this morning for Lucy, our little dog. She just licked all the sauce off, but didn't eat them. So I just put them back in the fridge. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, oh. I'm like, oh I just want to puke, right? I'm like, the, the. so if you, if you think I have bad breath sometimes, that's why. I blame it on that. But what was this, there was this moment, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh, I just want to puke, right? Like, that is just, it was fine up until that moment. But we all have these, these um, yeah, some can't even have, they got to lock out, right? It's like, oh. Uh, but we all have, I'm just kidding, Joe. We all have, we all have that. You know, you have it as well. Like, just for a minute, just do something with me. Just, just swallow the saliva that you have in your mouth. Just, just, just swallow that. I, I know, you're a little worried now where this is going, but I had a, I had a Dixie cup here. I don't know where it went. Anyways, if, oh, there it is. So if I were to just give this Dixie cup to any one of you who'd volunteer, and just ask you, maybe we'll just all do it in our minds. I just ask you to spit in the Dixie cup for a minute, okay? And then you spit in the Dixie cup, then I'd ask you to drink. Yeah, see, and some of you are like, what? That's your saliva. Like, not drink mine, just drink your own. But something about as soon as you spit in the cup, it's like, ugh, there's this like, there's this disgust, there's this, this emotion that comes up as a result of that. What, what is that? That's something naturally that we have in us that keeps this perimeter to keep us safe, to keep us healthy, to keep us, um, in some senses, morally pure. And what happens is we're naturally tempted to transfer the disgust, that, we, that feeling of disgust. We are naturally tempted to transfer that to people as well. That those emotions are the same thing, that same feeling of disgust for that that uh, uh, spit in a cup or whatever, we want to transfer that. And so what Jesus is telling, he's like, disgust is okay for things, but it's not okay for people. The disciples thought, you know, that the Samaritans would make them unclean. It's all they'd ever been told. You hang out with those people, you're going to be unclean. You know, it's, um, you got to keep them out of your circle. It's like, we're, we stick to ourselves. It's us and those people. We don't associate with those people because they might make us unclean. When you think of that, it's like, well, now we ask the question, who are the people on the outside of your moral circle? And is there a bit inside of that little bit of disgust? We wouldn't maybe call it disgust, but it's like the, I, I feel like that, that might affect me. 
You know, it's like whether you're hanging out with people of a different age or different race or different beliefs or different sexual orientation or whatever it is. It's like, you know, maybe you're in a spot and you're like, oh, man, I hope, I hope people from the church don't see me with those people. I hope that they don't catch. And, and it could be any different group of people. Why do we have that thing? Well, it's naturally in us. It's naturally in us because, see, what we naturally think is that when clean meets dirty, clean becomes dirty, right? That's what we think. I'll give you an illustration. I need a glove for this one. So, how many of you know what this is? An apple, yes. And then I also got a piece of dog poop this morning. It's all good. I got a glove. We're good. So, if I were to take this this morning, and I would just rub some on here. Who wants to eat the apple? That's the easiest question today, right? Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to eat the apple. And I know for those back there who think they want to, you're disgusting. You know, <laughs> if you want to eat the apple, what, what happened? We thought right away that this apple became dirty. It was clean, but it's now dirty because it came into contact with dirty. The opposite is not true. How many of you want to eat this? It touched a clean apple. It should be clean, right? Well, no, we automatically know that that's not the case. It never happens that way. These are souvenirs for whoever would like them afterwards. You'll remember today, you're like, what is up with this? <laughs> See, but that's the thing. That, that, that's what Jesus was coming to show his disciples and to show us as his disciples. Is that when Jesus touches unclean people, unclean becomes clean. They never understood that. It's something that in our natural tendency we're tempted not to believe. But he shows it so often. You can go home and look it up. Matthew chapter 8, a leper comes to Jesus. A leper who would have to walk around all the time saying, unclean, unclean, if anybody came near them, unclean, so that they didn't accidentally touch them. Leper came before Jesus and said, Jesus, if you're willing, you can, you can heal me. And Jesus is like, I'm willing. But it says something really powerful. It says he reaches out and he touches that leper. We don't know how for how long. Maybe it's a few seconds. Maybe it's a minute. Just that he could feel the chance to be touched one more time. And then it says, then Jesus healed him and he became clean. See, because when unclean touches clean, touches Jesus, they become clean. There was a woman with an issue of blood. Maybe you know the story. You can read it in Luke chapter 8. She'd been bleeding for 12 years, which was, again, for them and their culture, that's unclean. Nobody's allowed to be around this woman. So for 12 years, picture 12 years not being able to have normal, um, healthy relationships with people because you always had to be at a distance. Well, this woman comes up and reaches and touches Jesus' garment. And what does Jesus do? He's like, oh, what did you do? You shouldn't touch me. No, he praises her and says, Woman, your faith, the fact that you reached out to touch who you knew could heal you. He says he, he commends her for that. In, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is walking with his disciples and a funeral procession goes by. And there's a widow whose son has passed away. And what does Jesus do? He walks up to an open casket and he touches the body, which was a no-no back then. He would have been ceremonially unclean. And yet what happens? The boy is raised to life. Because Jesus says and shows that whenever Jesus can touch imperfect people, unclean becomes clean. Whenever Jesus can touch the people that we think are those people, unclean has the opportunity to become clean. And so there's things that are common for all people. See, our challenge this morning is that we would, we would push the moral circle further, that we would make more room at our table for people. Um, the thing is, the things that are common for all people is this. They're made in the image of God. They are made in the image of God. They are sacred. They are incredibly valuable to God. 
each and every person that you ever come into contact with, no matter where it is. The other thought is this, you saw in the video, there, you know, you, you treat your mom and your brother, or your friends a certain way, but they're someone's mom, they're someone's brother, they're someone's friend, and deserve to be treated in that way. You know, they all have a story. You meet somebody, you think you meet them at face value, and you, you're tempted to make a moral judgment on them. We, we all are. But they have a story. And as you heard the stories the past couple of weeks, you realize, wow, I think differently now that I know the story. And the last thing is they need a Savior, like I do and like you do. And whenever Jesus can touch imperfect people like me, then unclean has a chance to become clean. So here's the thing today. Jesus has room at his table for those people, but do we? Do we as a church have room for those people here? A couple weeks ago, I got a text from somebody. They're like, is it proper church etiquette to say that I'd pick someone up if they're drunk and bring them into church? And then I called them. I was like, what do you mean by that? They're like, can I bring a drunk guy to church tonight? I was like, yeah. I don't know if he'll get anything out of it. He might get more out of it. I don't know. But yeah. But why do we have that question? Because it's that question of, are those people welcome here? And I would say that Jesus would say yes. But the trick for us or the thing for us is that we've got to push past that natural tendency on the inside of us to say, no, no, no. If, if they're here, something's not right. So I think as Kingsway, you guys do a really great job of that, that you treat people like family. That's what they say when they come here. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like family. But I want to see you know, that that would even continue to increase and so the challenge is this, would you accept the challenge to see people instead of those people? Would you accept the challenge, and maybe it's awkward, you're like, ah, Mark, I just, I have a hard time with those people. Would you accept the challenge like the early disciples did, that yeah, it might be awkward, but I'm going to push past and see people? Would you push past the temptation to exclude those people? Oh, the ones that you have a hard time having conversations with or feeling awkward around. Would you enlarge your moral circle? Would we as a church enlarge our moral circle to make room at the table for people? And maybe here this morning, the last group of people I want to talk to, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're like, I just came to church and they got poop up there. Like, what is this all about? <laughs> and they even laugh about it. Who are these freaks, right? Just for the record, it's a Tootsie Roll wrap rolled in dirt. It's not... I know all the OCD people are like, I'm never eating apples again, right? But maybe, maybe that's the case. Or, may, or maybe for you, your hesitation to become a Jesus follower has been this topic. You find church people are those people to you. They're the, the ones who've been judgmental. They're the ones who've been hypocritical. They're the, they're the ones who, you know, they talk about love, but they, they, I, I don't see that from them. My challenge for you this morning is, as I've been honest with you, is that that's a natural tendency of people. Whenever there's imperfect people, you're going to have that kind of thing. In this church, we're full of imperfect people. And so there's a natural tendency for us to want to, yes, I know, surprise, <laughs> imperfect people. There's a natural tendency on the inside of us, and it's the inside of you, to, to, to push back and to have those reservations for people. So I would just ask you for grace to realize that this is a, a group of people who don't claim to be perfect and that Jesus never asked you to come and say, hey, look at my church and then become one of them. He said, hey, come and look at me. Come to me. And Jesus is calling you, even if you have difficulties with the church and maybe difficulties with people, he loves you. 
And he's calling you to come to sit at his table. He's calling you to come into relationship with him. He's calling you to leave sin, the stuff that destroys your life, for your sake. That's why he's asking you to leave that and say, I'm going to follow you. And because we couldn't do that on our own, he sent his son to die on a cross, something we were going to celebrate at Easter, but he did that for you because he loves you that much. Whether you've been here a ton of times or today's your first day, he loves you and he's inviting you to take him up on his offer of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life, the same as he did for that woman. And all you need to respond with is, okay, Jesus, help me to see this a totally different way. I'm turning from that and I'm following you. And this morning to the Jesus followers here, Easter's coming up. It is the best opportunity for you to invite someone to come, to have the opportunity to hear. Like, I don't know what to tell him. Tell him what he's done in your life. Just say, you know what, hey, this is what God's done in my life. Want to come to church with me? Maybe you'll have the opportunity to tell him about Jesus, but at the very least, would you invite them over Easter? Because there's many, many people who need to know what Jesus has done for them. That it truly is a good, good father who loves people. Those people are people, people to him and should be to us. I hope the illustrations stick that in your mind, that Holy Spirit does in you what he's doing in me and that others' lives will be affected as a result. Can we pray? Father, thanks for this morning. I know what you're working in me uh, in regards to this and I'm thankful for that. And I pray for other people here this morning that have just shared this, that God, really, it's more important what you share in their hearts. That you would not only uh, spike that interest or that desire, that spot of wanting to live like you, but that you'd give us the power and ability to do so. That you'd fill us with your love. That you'd help us to see people the way you see them. And that, as a result, real people would come to really know you. Thank you for that. I pray that you're, uh, as we go from this place, we know you're with us. Never leave us. Never forsake us. We go in your name and for your glory. Amen.